Well, if you do have your Bible with you today, let me invite you to open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this gospel, the gospel of John. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 36. And if you are following along in your bulletin, there is an outline where you can take a few notes. The sermon title today is, When I Am Lifted Up. When I Am Lifted Up. So we read this from the Apostle John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus speaking says, And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of knowing Christ. Thank you for the light that he shines in this world and in our hearts. And I pray that tonight as we look, or this afternoon, uh, as we look at this text, God, would you enable us to see more clearly the life and the light of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have a secret to confess to you this morning, and that is I've kind of always wanted to be a pilot. I think being an airplane pilot or a helicopter pilot would be one of the coolest jobs you could ever have. In fact, I have a brother who flies for Delta, a brother-in-law who's, who's a pilot for Delta. Every time we're together, I ask him like a thousand questions about the plane, about flying, about any close crashes he's had, all kind of stuff just to kind of get that inside information, right? And what I've learned about flying is that there are four key factors that make this possible. There may be the wings of an airplane that help keep it up in the air, but without these four forces, it wouldn't be up in the air for very long. Simply put, there is thrust, drag, lift, and weight. Thrust is the force that the jet engine or propeller creates that moves the plane forward. The second force is drag, and that opposes thrust. It tends to slow an object down. And that is why planes are built to be aerodynamic. The third force is lift. A plane that sits on a runway doesn't have any lift, but it does have weight. And as the plane moves forward, its lift force increases until it equals its weight. Once the lift equals weight, the plane can fly. The final force is weight, which is caused by gravity. Because excess weight requires more lift and in return more thrust, heavy planes are more difficult to get off the ground as compared to lighter ones. Now, the way these four forces act on the airplane make the plane do different things. And when all the forces are balanced, the plane flies in a level direction. Flying requires four forces. But being a Christian only requires one. It just requires lift. Jesus said in this passage, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is a clear reference to the cross. And the point I'm trying to make is simple. The cross is essential to your salvation. 
And without Christ being nailed to the cross and lifted up and dying to pay sin's penalty, there would be no salvation for your soul. The cross is central to everything in a Christian life. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross. 1 Corinthians says that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. There are many theological discussions about the Christian faith, but one thing that true Christians cannot differ on is the cross. Without Jesus being lifted up on the cross, your life would be in jeopardy and your world would come crashing down. Without Jesus being lifted up on the cross, there would be no thrust for you to live the Christian life. And without Jesus being lifted up on the cross, the weight of your sin and the drag of this world would keep you grounded. And so today, I want to look at this passage and give you three headings that will help us better understand the meaning and the significance of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. Our first heading this morning is the divine atonement of the cross. And let me go ahead and give you that first blank about the mode of Jesus's death. Look at verses 32 and 33 in our text this morning. Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now here in our study of John 12, we've seen that while Jesus was troubled, he was also determined to go to the cross. And it was for this very purpose that he came to this hour. And that's why he prays, Father, glorify your name. And Jesus goes on to talk about being lifted up from the earth. And this is a reference to being lifted up from the earth on a wooden cross, usually Jews were known to execute blasphemers by stoning them to death. You remember that Paul was stoned and left to die. Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 7. The the Jews almost stoned the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. But when Jesus is talking about being lifted up, he's not talking about being stoned. He's talking about the mode of death by which he will die. He said, I must be lifted up. And so Jesus in this phrase, if I must be lifted up, is not talking about exalting him in your hearts, though that is an appropriate thing to do. Sometimes a preacher, if he's not done his homework, will be like, we need to lift Jesus up from this earth. And in one sense, I get that, right? But in another sense, if he's doing it from this text, we're like, eh, well, he's, you know, he's already been crucified. And so we can't, we can't lift him up in that sense because that's the sense that's going on here, right? He's not talking about just exalting him in your hearts. He's talking about Jesus accomplishing the atonement. Like, unless he's lifted up on the cross and dies for your sins, there's no heaven for you, and there's no forgiveness for you, and there's no hope for you. And so he must be lifted up from the earth on a cross. And the Romans had perfected this this style of torture and execution of a criminal of the cross. And history records that they would lift up these crosses anywhere from 8 to 15 feet off the ground so that all would see what would happen to the person who rebelled against Rome. Verse 33 clearly informs us that Jesus said this was to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You think about it. There are many prophecies in the Bible pointing to Jesus' death, but there are only a few 
that point to the mode of his death being on a cross. There's this one and two others in the Gospel of John, John 3:14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And again, Jesus points to the fact that he will be lifted up on a cross. In John 8:28, Jesus said to them, When you had lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So the mode of Jesus' death was not a coincidence. It was not a happenstance. It was ordained by God that Jesus would die in exactly this way. This is further evidence of the omniscience of our Lord as Jesus knew in advance how he would die. Not in bed, not by being stoned to death, but by being nailed to a cross and lifted up from the earth. Well, now that we've clearly understood the mode of Jesus' death, let's look at the meaning of Jesus' words. What does he mean here in verse 32 when he says, when he's lifted up, that he says, I will draw all men to myself, all people, he says in the ESV, to myself. The NASB records all men. What does he mean when he says this? Well, I can tell you what this statement doesn't mean. It does not mean that Jesus will save every individual on the earth as universalist belief. I also do not believe, as Arminians do, that Jesus is attempting to woo all people to himself, hoping that some might come to him based on their own free will. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, that if left to ourselves, we would not and we cannot come to Christ based on our own effort. Jesus taught us, or the, the Gospel of John, rather, John 1, 12-13, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yes, you must repent of your sin. Yes, you need to receive Jesus as Lord. Yes, you need to believe in his name to be born again, but you are not born again based on your own ethnicity or your own bloodline. You are not born again based on your own good works. You are not born again based on your own will. It was based on God's will. And remember, he gives you a new will. He changes your desire. He sets you free from your sin and gives you the ability to repent and to believe in him. And so I believe here in verse 32 when he says, all people, I will draw all people to myself. I believe that he's talking about all types of people and all classes of people. It, it matters not about your color. It matters not about your culture. It matters not about your ethnicity. It matters not about your education. It matters not about your status in this life. What matters is that God draws you. And if you'll remember from our study in John 6:44, we looked at this word draw, did a little word study. Remember John 6:44, Jesus said, "No one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day." We looked lexically at this word draw, and we learned that the word draw does not mean to woo. It does not mean to attract. It means, get this, to drag. In the original language, 
According to BDAG, it means literally to drag. It means, quote, to pull by force. It means from another lexicon, quote, to move an object from one area to another. Now this means that the power is not in the person, but it is in the one drawing or dragging the person. And in John 6:44, that would be the Father. And here in John 12:32, that would be Jesus. The Father draws and the Son draws. True Christians are doubly drawn by the Father and the Son. Just like true Christians are doubly clasped in the Father's hand and in the Son's hand, according to John 10, 28 through 29. The atonement of Christ did not make salvation possible. The atonement of Christ accomplished salvation for those who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So Jesus died not hoping that some would be saved if they wanted to, but knowing that he had accomplished his Father's will by dying for his own. And when he said on the cross, it is finished, he is saying that salvation for the elect has been fully accomplished. That God's wrath against sin has been fully satisfied. The substitution of the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of all those in the world who would repent and believe, and it's all by grace. Now, how does this happen? It happens on the cross. Without a cross, this doesn't happen. But because of the cross, salvation is accomplished on the cross. And so if a person is drawn to the cross and the love of God displayed there, then God is drawing that person to himself. But when a person sees the cross and they are either indifferent to it or they are repelled by the gruesome sacrifice, somehow they are turned off by the holiness of God which required the blood of his own son. If that person rejects the gospel and they reject the cross and that person is not being drawn to saving faith, they're being judged by the cross. So the cross has this effect on every person in the world. It either draws you, drags you to himself, not against your will, but by giving you a new one, or the cross is standing as a judgment on those who will not repent and will not believe because of their own stubborn hearts. And so now what we're seeing here is there's divine atonement at the cross. The mode is important, the meaning is important. Let's look at our second heading here, number two, the doubting assessment of the crowd. Verse 34, the crowd here says, answered him, we have heard uh, from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now your next blank here says, the past understanding. The past understanding, the crowd, a mix of Jews here, likely prompted by the Pharisees, said that the law taught a certain thing. The law in this context seems to be a reference to the entire Old Testament. Sometimes it's used as a reference to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books written by Moses. In this context, we believe it's a reference to the entire Old Testament, which over and over and over again teaches that the Messiah, or the Son of Man, the Christ, will live forever. Psalm 72, 17, it says that his name will endure forever. Isaiah 9, 7 says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
Ezekiel 37, 25 says, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. You might remember the prophecy that we've looked at a few times recently from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, talking about how the Son of Man will have a kingdom and a dominion, and his dominion will be everlasting and shall never pass away. There's Micah 4, 7 that talks about how the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And so after considering all these prophecies, were the Jews right in saying that the law or the Old Testament taught that the Christ would remain forever? Yes, this is correct. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of Man, the Lord of glory will reign forever and his kingdom will know no end. And so this past understanding, which was correct, leads us to a present dilemma. That's your next blank. A present dilemma. And the present dilemma is this. If the Christ is to live forever, how come Jesus keeps talking about dying? I mean, just in this chapter alone, we've read about how Mary wiped Jesus' feet with expensive ointment, and Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In verse 8 of the same chapter, for the poor you will always have with you, Jesus said, but you will not always have me. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. And then in verse 33, Jesus is talking about being lifted up from the earth to show what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd is actually asking a good question here. Right? How is it that you can say that you're going to be crucified and you're going to die if you truly are the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? They're totally perplexed here. And what the Jews are exposing is their own limited view of Scripture. You see, this is actually not a good question. Because if they had read their Bible, they would understand not only prophecies of his death, but prophecy of his resurrection. But instead, they only looked at the part of Scripture that they liked, and they didn't look at the parts of Scripture that they didn't really like or understand, like the Messiah dying on a cross. They liked all the Scriptures that talked about the success of the kingdom of Israel. They liked all the prophecies about the Messiah's reign. They liked the idea of Israel being a powerful nation. Prophecies like Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Prophecies like Psalm 2 verse 9 that says the Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Prophecies like Psalm 89 3 that says the Messiah will crush his adversaries before them. Prophecies like Job 34 24 that says the Messiah will break into pieces the mighty men of this world. In the Davidic covenant given in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, God says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So do you get what's going on here? The Jews only want to hear the good things. They only want to hear what they want to hear. And what they want to be told is that they are awesome. They want to be told that they are right. They want to be told that they will always win. This is just who they are. It's our human nature, right? It's in our blood. We want people to tell us good things. I mean, how many of you like to go to lunch with somebody who tells you bad things? Like pretty soon you're like, I'm moving them off my lunch schedule. I'm going to go to lunch with people who tell me good things. That's what I want to hear. 
That's certainly true of wicked King Ahab, who wanted to go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, and he asked King Jehoshaphat from Judah, will you go with me to attack? And so they seek counsel from these false prophets, but then Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of God who we can inquire of? And here's what King Ahab, how he responded to him. He said this, 1 Kings 22, 8, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Right? We don't like to hear the truth sometimes. And Israel refused to listen to the full counsel of God's word. They cherry-picked passages that made them feel good. And they built up their self-images. Passages that made them feel invincible. Passages that promised health and wealth. And my friends, the same thing is going on today in churches all across this land. People who go to church today in America want to hear all the good stuff. They want to be told that they are wonderful. They want to be told that they are right. They want to be told that they can be rich. They want to be told that they can have freedom to do whatever they want. They want to have their ego stroked. They want to have their liberties expanded. They want to have all the material things that this world offers. I mean, I want a plane. You guys want to fly your pastor around in a plane? I'll take a G5 from Jetstream. And that's what some pastors say, right? Well, I was speaking to God today, and we need to raise money for an airplane for me to fly in style. It's like, are you kidding me? Right? I mean, this is what people want, the itching of their ears. They want to be told that they can have their best life now. They want to be told that everybody's going to heaven. They want to be told that God is a God of love and not of judgment. They want to be told that God accepts everybody and would never ask anybody to change. They want to be told about the rewards, but they do not want to be told about repentance. They want a double portion of grace, but they don't want the discipline of our loving Lord. They want to be blessed beyond measure, but they don't want to bear up under trials. The problem with this is that this is craziness and it's insanity and it's blindness to the whole counsel of the Word of God. True Christians welcome all of God's truth in the Bible and live our lives in accordance with His holy Word. And in this situation, the Jews had forgotten that the Messiah must be cut off, and they didn't want to focus on the Son of Man's death. They had forgotten that the Messiah would be the Passover lamb. Exodus 12. They had forgotten that the atonement comes through the blood of the Savior, Leviticus 16 and 17. They had forgotten that the Messiah would thirst and that he would be scorned and that he would be pierced in his hands and his feet and that he would be forsaken by God, Psalm 22. The Jews had forgotten that the Messiah would be despised and rejected, that he would be a man of sorrows, that he would be acquainted with grief. They had forgotten that the Messiah would be oppressed, that he would be afflicted, that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. They had forgotten that it was the will of the Father to crush the Messiah, Isaiah 53. And because Israel had forgotten these prophecies, and because they did not heed the full counsel of God's word, because they got more focused on the teaching of man and the feelings of their flesh, Instead of the teaching of God and living by faith in God's word, they didn't even recognize the Messiah, the Son of Man, when he stood right before their eyes. Who is the Son of Man, they ask. This doesn't look like 
what we were looking for. Well, maybe they were looking for the wrong thing because they didn't see Christ in the flesh right in front of them. The same thing happens in our world today. By now, you've probably heard that Vice President Pence, his wife, has taken a part-time job teaching art in a Christian school. Media went crazy about this. The Christian school in Virginia stands for the gospel in faith and in practice, and so they don't allow their staff to be practicing homosexuals. So what does our media do? Celebrities all over calling for, for, for his resignation, as being vice president, for her to stop working at a Christian school that has the same doctrine of, sta- of, of, uh, of the gospel, uh, you know, biblical doctrine it's had since its inception. Even at a concert in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, well-known theologian Lady Gaga <laughs> blasts Vice President Pence and his Christianity in the middle of the concert. Here's what Lady Gaga, secular pop artist and self-proclaimed bisexual, said in, the, in her concert. She said this, quote, You, Mike Pence, are wrong. You are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. I am a Christian woman. And what I do know about Christianity is that we bear no prejudice and everybody is welcome. You can take all that disgrace, Mr. Pence, and you can look at yourself in the mirror and you'll find it right there. Close quote. Lady Gaga believes that she is a Christian. She believes that she knows God. But she does not believe that God calls people to repentance and renewal in Christ. What Lady Gaga and our culture does not understand is that all are welcome to come to Christ. But coming to Christ means confessing your sin and being cleansed by the blood of the Savior. As a born-again Christian, God gives you a new heart and he changes your desires. Christians love Christ and they want to follow him. And Christians put off the deeds of the flesh in the power of the Spirit. And they put on the righteousness of Christ. And so the present dilemma is that Jesus is the Christ and he will reign as an all-conquering king, but he first must die. And he must die not because everybody deserves a little suffering. He must die in order to accomplish salvation. And he must die so that suffering and sin can be defeated once for all. It's not taking all of your sin and adding a loving Christ to that and then ignoring the fact that he died to pay for your sin so that you can repent and have that washed away. The dilemma of our world is that they think of Christianity only as a religion of love and acceptance of all people and all things they are doing without checking what they're doing and how they're living by the authority of God's word. And so they've fallen into the time of the judges where every man does what is right in his own eyes. Now, how about you today? Do you have an understanding of what the Bible teaches? Do you accept all of it? Are just the parts that are popular or accommodating to your own lifestyle? Are there dilemmas going on in your thinking? Are you prone to put your own thoughts and feelings over God's word? Do you recognize Christ from scripture or do you have a Christ of your own making based on our culture? If you know Christ today, it is because by his grace, he's revealed himself to you. 
If you know him, then you know all of him. He's the lion and the lamb. He's pure and holy, and he hates sin. And he calls you out of darkness, and he calls you into his glorious light. And that's what our last heading is on, really. Number three here says the deep-rooted answer of Christ. The real issue, your next blank, is not a theological debate, but a theological implication. Look at verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. People love to get into theological arguments. And the Jews were notorious for debating with Jesus about their own perception of God and his word. They wanted to place their own views of understanding scripture over Jesus's teaching. And the problem is they took scripture out of context The problem was that they added to Scripture many man-made laws. The problem was that they used the law and the teaching of the Pharisees to justify their actions in an attempt to justify their own souls. Listen to me. The law was not given to save you from your sin. It was given to point you to Christ. The law was not given to cleanse you. It was given to confront you and to show you your need of a savior. The law does not have the power to save, but only to condemn. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to wash away your sin and your guilt. And that's why when we sing songs like we sang this morning, we sing this one name. His name is Jesus. That's who we're singing to. That's what we're singing about. He must save you of your sin. And you can't pick yourself up off the ground. If I hear another Christian song about picking myself up again, I just want to throw up. Right? It's like, I mean, I think I know what they're saying, but it's like, that's just wrong. You can't pick yourself up. God picks you up. You were spiritually dead. Jesus raised you up and made you alive. He came to do what the law and your own effort you could never do. And that is that he came to give you a new heart and a new life and new desires. And all of this comes from Jesus, who is the light of the world. And so it's kind of like they're wanting to debate about who is the Son of Man and what about the prophecies of the Old Testament, and that's important, and it has its place. But Jesus is kind of getting fed up with this debate back and forth, and he's like, I'm just going to talk to you about light. And we know that he is the light, John 1, 4. He was the life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever has light has life, right? So if Jesus is the light, then the Jews need to look to him for spiritual understanding. They need to heed the teaching of Jesus. They need to ask Jesus to help them see with eyes of faith. And the problem is that the Jews are in the darkness. It's almost like they're trying to figure it all out before they just repent and bow the knee. And that's what happens, right? When you're debating somebody in apologetics or just your sinful neighbor or coworker, you start going round and round and round about everything. And at some point, you just got to be like, time out. You need Christ. Without, the fact is, you're a sinner. And if you don't repent and look to Christ, you'll never understand anything I'm saying. It, it, you can't just say, I, I need to do more by keeping the law. That was the Pharisees' particular struggle. We need to keep the law, keep the law. You don't get saved by keeping a bunch of rules. That's a slap in the face of grace. 
And that's why Jesus said to these Pharisees earlier in John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Listen, because he's talking to Pharisees so many of the time, some of them might have had some wild secret life on the side, but mostly they were just struggling with legalism. And that's just as evil. It's just as wicked to think somehow you're pleasing God or honoring him by your external acts of obedience if your heart is far from him. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is saying that the Jews are not a little off. They're way off. They didn't miss just Christ. They missed Yahweh. They didn't need a little tweaking. They needed a wholesale conversion generated by grace. And so what is really going on here is that Jesus is giving them a deeper answer by going for the jugular. Jesus is saying you need the light, not the Old Testament law. You need the light, not your legalism. And some people say that in this passage, Jesus didn't appropriately answer their exact question about the dilemma. Remember, they're saying, well, if, if you're going to die, how can you be the son of man? And, if, and Jesus, all of a sudden, he starts start talking about light. Well, the, the, the answer to that is Jesus decided to say what he was going to say. Because what they needed to hear in that moment is not ongoing forever debates, even though he's happy to do that and has done it throughout the Gospels. He now wants to point to the fact where he's just saying, look, we only have a little time left. Let me tell you about the light. And maybe you felt like that when you're debating people, that you just need to get straight to the Gospel. Uh, maybe you've heard John MacArthur, God bless him, 50 years of ministry. They're celebrating today. That means I got 44 more years. All right? I've been here six. I was counting. I got 44. Stay with me. All right? Don't go anywhere. 44 more years. But you know how he's been on like Larry King and recently on that Ben Shapiro show. I, I love hearing him talk about it sometimes in Q&As. He'll talk about like, you know, what's it like to be talking to Larry King? And, and he always says this. He's like, hey, man, when I go on that show, I already predetermined what I'm going to say. I'm just going to talk about Christ. And they can ask me whatever question they want. They can get into whatever theological conversation that they want to, but I just handle it like this. I'm like, well, Larry, I don't know a lot about that, but I do know if you don't repent, you're going to hell. <laughs> you know? And then he just crystal, crystallizes the conversation with a gospel-centric way of pointing to the cross. That's what it's all about. And sometimes we need to stop debating and start calling people to just repent and believe in Jesus. And that leads us to our, our next blank. The real issue is not about being overcome by the darkness, but walking in the light. Just as we've seen that Jesus is the light, we are called to walk in the light. And if you're not walking forward with Jesus in the light, then you're going backwards with the devil in the darkness. There is an enemy who lives in the darkness and he wants to overtake you. And you must be on your guard and you must fight the fight of faith and you must walk in the light of Jesus. And so when Jesus says the light is among you for a little while longer, he's saying that his time on earth is almost done. He will die in a couple of days. He will be in the grave for three days and three nights. After the resurrection, he will minister on the earth for another 40 days and then the ascension. So Jesus is saying that the time to get all this figured out is now. The time to start believing in him and following him is now. Today is the devil's day, but uh, uh, the, tomorrow is the devil's day. That's how I wanted to say it. But today belongs to the Lord. In other words, if you keep putting it off, tomorrow, the next day, I'll keep thinking about it. There, there's a warning here about not being overcome with the darkness. And Jesus talks about 
this in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about that your eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And so there's constant warnings throughout Scripture. There's even uh, the proverb that says in Proverbs chapter 2, 13 and 14, forsake the paths of unrighteousness to walk in the ways of darkness with those who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. So don't, don't be overtaken by darkness, 1 John 1, 6. Uh, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful walks of the darkness. So he's saying here, don't be overcome by the darkness. It's all over the world. Don't, don't let that affect you. And instead, you need to be walking in the light. The people who were in darkness, earlier he says in this text, they don't know where they're going. They're, they're like, they're confused. We know where they're going because the Bible tells us that they will be thrown into outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the person who is walking in the darkness does not know, but we understand the Bible teaches that it's the blind leading the blind. And without spiritual light and illumination, those who have been overtaken by darkness are floundering and they're flailing and they're facing an eternal bankruptcy in hell. But Jesus says we're to walk in the light, and this means we're to walk with Jesus, who is the light. This means that we are to walk according to his word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. This means we're to look to Christ and to love Christ and to live every moment with Christ in mind. This is Ephesians 5, 8 and 9, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. 1 John 1.7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light in the whole house, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yes, it is about having the right theology. Yes, it is about knowing the truth. But it's also about living it out. And this means day by day, you're exalting Christ in your marriage. Loving and serving your spouse as unto the Lord. This means day by day you're leading your children to faith in Christ. This means that day by day you're a witness in this world. This means that we are adoring Christ and not the material possessions of this world. We're walking in the light as Christians. This is what Christ has called us to. And notice this last blank here says the real issue is about believing in the light while you haven't. Believing while you have the light. Have you noticed the urgency here that Christ mentions over and over in these verses 35 and 36? The light is among you for a little while longer and walk while you have the light. And while you have the light, believe in the light. Jesus told the Pharisees earlier in John 8, 21, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 36, where I am going, you cannot uh, follow me. In uh, John 16, 16, a little while, and you will see me no longer. So if all of this is what we're learning is Jesus is saying, basically, you need to follow me right now. 
There's a time when I'm going to be gone. We need to heed his word today. There is nothing noble about putting it off until tomorrow. There is no wisdom in waiting. There is nothing more important for you to do in your life. There is no reason that I would ever encourage you to linger for another hour. You know, sometimes people are like, well, I just want to think about it for a little while. I never tell somebody, yeah, yeah, you go and think about it. Take your time. I just say, you know what? I understand what you're saying. If you need to think about it, it's God's time. I get that. But today is the day. Don't put it off any longer. Every second you put it off, then you are living a life of distrust in the power of the gospel to save you and the seriousness of, according to scripture, of not putting it off. I mean, if you had cancer and your doctor said we need to give it out before it spreads, you would probably say, let's take it out today. Right? If there was a fire consuming your entire house and you were on the inside, you would not take your time, but there would be an immediate evacuation. If there was an armed robber firing bullets at you or your family and you had a loaded gun and a clear shot, you probably wouldn't wait to take it. Right? I mean, there's sometimes you just don't wait. And the Bible says when it comes to salvation, it never says wait. It never says that. Instead, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I'm talking to a master's university student. I'm talking to a mom or dad. I'm talking to a kid this morning that keeps thinking, I'll just keep kicking the soccer ball down the field. And eventually, I'll think about maybe trying to score that goal. Listen, you don't wait for anything, right? And you can't score the goal anyway, right? We get that. But the point is, you can't just keep putting it off. God is calling you this day under the sound of my voice through the scripture that today is the day. And for you, that may be that you're a sinner and you need saving faith. And that may mean that you're a Christian harboring some secret sin in your life. And it's eating you up inside. And it's tearing your family apart. And you're like, you know what, I'll just kind of keep waiting. I'll deal with that later. No, no, no. Today is the day. The Bible says in Psalm 81, 11 through 12, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. Romans 1 talks about being given over to your flesh. And you remember the story of Esau? He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He was willing to forfeit his future inheritance for some momentary pleasure. And this is a picture of him rejecting God's provision for this bowl of soup. This is the same thing as saying that you're willing to sell your soul to the devil. This is the same thing as saying that you're willing to gain the whole world and give up your soul. What happened to Esau? You might remember Hebrews chapter 12, 16 through 17 says this about Esau. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
These verses in Hebrews are challenging to understand, but I believe they're telling us that when Esau finally woke up and came to his senses, at least to some degree, he made an insufficient, half-hearted attempt to gain back what he had lost. Just because he sought it with tears does not demonstrate a true change of heart or genuine repentance. He may have bitterly regretted what he had done, but he did not repent. He selfishly wanted the blessing of an inheritance, but he didn't want the God who offered it to him. He was ungodly and immoral. He had fully apostatized and was forever outside of saving grace. Why? Because apparently he was not truly repentant, but only remorseful. Today's the day of salvation. Don't, don't play around with this. William MacDonald says on this passage, quote, The Lord seemed to liken himself to the sun and to the daylight it offers. The sun rises in the morning, it reaches its peak at noon, and it descends over the horizon in the evening. It is only with us for a limited number of hours. We should avail ourselves of it while it is here. Because when the night comes, we do not have the benefit of it. Spiritually, the one who believes on the Lord Jesus is the one who walks in the light. This one who rejects him walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. He lacks divine guidance and stumbles through life. Well, how about you this morning? You see, the real issue this morning is not debating about Esau, whether he should have been able to repent or not. The true issue this morning is not about Pharaoh, whether God hardened his heart or he hardened his own heart. The issue at hand is not about the people who live in the jungles of unreached Africa or South America. The real issue is you. What will you do with the truth that has been preached to you on this morning? What will you do with the light that is shone forth on your countenance this day? What will you do this moment with the light while you have it? I call you this day to come to Christ. I call you this day to step out of darkness and to step out of shame. I call you this day to repent and to beg God to open your eyes and your heart to him. See his love for you this morning. He lifted up his son on a cross. And he did it because he loves you. See the grace that God extended to you this morning through the words of Jesus in this text. Believe in the light. Believe in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and was raised from the dead on the third day that you may have life. Confess your sins before God. Receive his forgiveness May your dead heart be regenerated this day as he floods your soul with mercy and with grace. If you're a believer today, remember, O Christian, that Jesus died for you. He was lifted up from this earth and he drew you to himself. He is the Son of Man and he is the Son of God. He alone and his propitiation alone can die his death is the only thing that would, would pay the place for your sins, right? So may the light of Christ shine on you and in you and through you for all the world to see. And while you have the light, may you believe in the light. May you follow the light. May you walk in the light as you are 
through Christ, a son or a daughter of the light. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Is he drawing you this day? If so, I pray that you'll come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word and to be challenged by the words of Christ. Sometimes we just keep piddling our thumbs and debating various issues and not dealing with the business at hand. And the implications of this text is Jesus is light. And if he's light, we need to get in the light. And some of us are still in the darkness. Some of us are in the shadows. Some of us are doing our own thing. Some of us have had our hearts grow cold. Some of us are like maybe Esau. God, I pray that today you would crush our hearts and you would drag us out of darkness into light and that you would change us from the inside out and that you would give us a new heart, remove our heart of stone. God, that you would excite us as we see the light of Christ. It's brighter than the darkness. God, I pray that you would allow us to see and to walk in that light of Christ today and to shine so others may see that when they see us, they would see our Father in heaven. They would see the brightness of the sun. I pray, God, that you would do saving work in hearts today and that you would continue your sanctifying work in hearts today, all because of the light of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.